When you guys have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. Good evening, by the way. Uh, If we don't know each other, my name's Josh. I'm the guy who is ordinarily up here teaching from the Bible on a given Sunday evening, which is part of the rhythm of this little church we call Van City. See, we like to think of ourselves less as like an event to attend on a Sunday evening, less like a spiritual pat on the back, less as a, a set of songs with a TED Talk about Jesus. Um, the analogy that we actually prefer is more like a dojo, which sounds weird, but bear with me. It's like we like to think of ourselves, hopefully, or what we're aspiring to be is a training hall where apprentices actually practice the way of their master together and all the clumsiness and trial and error that comes with it. So, we, yeah, we sing, absolutely. We pray. We take communion. We eat together. We enjoy one another's company, all the stuff that's sort of part and parcel of the church experience. But we open the scriptures. We study the story of God. We study the teachings and the lifestyle of Jesus, who is our Lord, our teacher, our master. And then every few months, we take on a practice or a spiritual discipline or a principle of emotional health that we believe is taken from the life of Jesus. We talk about it here on Sundays for a little bit, and then we gather up in smaller groups throughout the week to actually try it. So recently, we talked about prayer, for example, and then we went out and we practiced what it meant to pray in a a wide variety of different genres and styles. We talked about fasting. We talked about silence and solitude, forgiveness, and then we actually went out and we tried it together in our communities. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. You try it once and then you've mastered it. It's sort of like building out for yourselves a tool belt of what it means to actually know and practice the way of Jesus. Now, All of that can actually come across as somewhat insular. You know, you're talking about a church building. Uh, We get together in this building. There are actual walls uh, that keep us out, you know, inside from the outside world. We have dinner together in homes throughout the week, again with the walls. And we practice the way of Jesus and all that's great stuff. But the question then becomes, how does the momentum generated by such a thing make it beyond the walls of a church or a home and go out into the world to cause trouble? And, And I mean in a good way. Uh, After all, the host culture in which you and I live, if you haven't noticed, isn't exactly on good terms with the idea of Christianity. Um, When I was a kid growing up in southeast Georgia, the strategy for what is commonly called evangelism, which is a word that sometimes people used to describe talking to people about what it is that you think about Jesus, evangelism was typically done with church events in my context, meaning you just invite someone to church. Your church is doing a thing. You invite them to a church shindig. Hey, this one's not lame. Trust me. And um, before that, and and really during that, and probably still today, uh, there was also the impersonal and I would argue largely destructive method of kind of like door-to-door evangelism where you present the gospel as if it were a pyramid scheme or like a fundraising event or something. Um, But today's culture is thoroughly post-Christian. The religious right has so politicized what was once called Uh, evangelicalism, that it is now a word that's so muddied, I I don't even want anything to do with it personally. And and most disciples of Jesus, or, or many at least, have become not ashamed of their master in any sense, but terribly embarrassed by the mess that we've made of his name and, uh, and his way of life, not to mention the, hosti- the hostility and the divisiveness that also often surfaces when his name is brought up at all. What do you mean by Jesus and what kind of Jesus and all that stuff? And so young disciples of Jesus a few years ago um, adopted new strategies. And uh, we'll, like, we'll make church cooler you know, uh, but they're on to us with that, believe me. Um, dimming the lights and adding a rock band doesn't go as far as it did 20 years ago. So 
Um, so then they started saying, well, we're going to do social justice, which is amazing. It's awesome. It should be done. Um, I, but I remember once sitting with a group of young people who were doing amazing social justice work in Portland, really awesome stuff. And uh, as this young lady with whom I was speaking described it to me, she mentioned that it was entirely compelled by a desire to, quote, uh, share the gospel, which I thought was incredible. I was like, oh, man, you're doing all this good stuff in the city, and it's to share the gospel? So I asked, how do you do that? And I was genuinely wanting to know. Like, I was looking for strategies. How do you do that? And then she just re-described the social justice work. So I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. That's incredible. But, but then how do you use that to talk about Jesus? And she seemed taken aback, and she said, oh, well, I guess we don't really, like, talk about Jesus, but we let the good stuff that we do speak for itself. And then I was a bit baffled because I was like, wait a minute, doing good stuff is somehow going to communicate <laughs> the complicated, beautiful story of like God became a man and he defeated evil and death. And as a result, we get invited into God's kingdom and the kingdom revolution of Jesus. And I was like, huh, that must be some serious social justice. Anyway, <laughs> but I totally understood what this young lady was saying, not to pick on her at all. What, what was once simple has become complicated, even in just a single generation, certainly in a couple. What was once strategic has become quite stale, and what was once productive is, in many cases, now destructive. And yet, I am going to argue, for at least for the next few weeks, that there is still one very good way to transmit the story of Jesus in a way that is neither superficial nor alienating, and it is, I think, the preferred method of Jesus himself. So, Let's read from Luke's biography of Jesus, chapter 19, beginning with the first verse. You guys ready? Feeling all right? Great, thanks. Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, and because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too was the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, we read in verse 7 that some, seeing Jesus in the home of Zacchaeus, are perturbed. Uh, and you ask why. Well, the answer is right there in the text. They say, quote, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But what does that mean, really? I mean, isn't everyone? Well, Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and most of us at least have some familiarity with that term and the kind of pejorative connotations that come with it. But remember, in the first century, Israel was occupied by a pagan empire, the empire of Rome. Zacchaeus is a Jewish man, we know from the story, working for the oppressors to take money from his own people. And what's worse, we know from history that tax collectors were notoriously corrupt. So there, there are accounts of Jewish tax collectors adding exorbitant fees onto Rome's already steep taxes so that they could pocket the difference. And of course, they had Roman officers stationed there in the city and their swords to back them up when they went to take money from their own people. So imagine how much 
A first century Jew would despise a tax collector. This is something like a Jewish man in Nazi-occupied France who works for the SS to help flush out his own people from hiding. And in the social ladder of the first century, there were classically two bottom rungs, the lowest of the absolute low, and those two rungs were tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, if you know the story of Jesus, who did Jesus famously have dinner with? <laughs> Ta- they got great. Wait, okay, we're on, a, we're on a great track tonight, man. Tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, as we all acknowledge that together, and I saw the smiles and I reciprocated the smiles. For many of you, something in your heart, and I'm, I'm right there with you, something in your heart flutters at a thing like that. You think, man, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful that when he asked that question, I know exactly what he's going to say. That's who Jesus ate with. Isn't it amazing? And of course it is. The answer is yes, it is beautiful. It is amazing, to be sure. But it's also easy for us to say, so let me update the image for us just a bit. Imagine Jesus himself steps into modern America and predictably begins to make headlines. You know, he stirred up controversy and acclaim everywhere he went, so he's making headlines. And those headlines read things like this. Jesus photographed enjoying dinner in the home of a notorious white supremacist. Or Jesus pictured with his hand on the shoulder of a rich, corrupt, far-right politician. Or, Jesus breaks bread with the alt-right. Jesus locates secret members of ISIS, has dinner with them. There on the front page, Jesus, smiling, glass of wine in his hand, sitting across the table from a convicted pedophile. Now, if you're anything like me, your mind is probably populated with the same kinds of questions and frustrations that onlookers in the first century must have had. Jesus, why the heck... Would you be at their dinner table for any reason other than to condemn them? Why are you hanging out with them? Why would you party with them? Everyone feels hopelessly romantic about Jesus' affection for the rejected, you know, those rejected by his society, until Jesus starts to schmooze with those we have rejected. And then it's suddenly like, oh, whoa, 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 not them. (laughs) Jesus, not them. We're against them. You don't know how bad they are. So that's the first reason that people are ticked that Jesus is going so far out of his way. I mean, he deliberately invites himself over to this guy's house. The guy's in a tree at the time, so it's like a pretty uh, broad gesture there. That's the first reason people are ticked. The second reason is that in the first century, a meal itself carried a certain meaningful weight that it no longer carries for us, not really. Um, Anthropologists call meals boundary markers. It's in a given culture throughout history, the dinner table represents the willingness of various people to come together, or it represents the unwillingness to do so. Meaning in order to understand the social boundaries of a culture, the invisible borders, so to speak, the hierarchy of a culture, the class system, look at who does and does not eat together. And this has changed a bit in modern Western society, but not completely. Most of us eat with our own families and our close friends, with few exceptions to that rule. And that's not all bad, but that's that's the way it is. This has always been the case, but it was particularly true of first century Jewish life and with a special meaning attached to it. See, in the story of the Bible, Israel was selected by God as a launch pad for His great plan to rescue the entire world from sin and suffering and evil and death. But in the story, if you know, Israel blows it again and again, and she's eventually dragged away into something called exile, which means the Jewish people were taken from their homes into captivity by the pagan empire of Babylon. So now there's no temple for the Jewish people. There's no sacrificial system. 
Thus, the Jewish people were forced to reinvent a means of worship, no longer in a temple with a priest, but in a home with a family. And so the home became the temple. The father was the priest, the table became the altar, the meal became the new sacrifice. And now enter a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees who became very serious about Israel obeying the Bible of their day, something called the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pharisees used to argue that if all of Israel would just keep the whole Torah for just one day, then the Messiah would come. God's favor would return to Israel and the horrible period of pagan oppression would finally come to an end. So understandably or predictably, they became obsessed with the letter of the law. Now, according to their thinking, given that the home is now the temple, no one should invite into their temple anyone who is a sinner on the bottom rungs of the social ladder, so to speak, a Gentile or a non-Jew, on down the long list of unclean, disqualified peoples. And here in tonight's story, you have a Jewish rabbi in the home of a tax collector. So for Rabbi Jesus, if the table is a boundary marker, and indeed it was, then we'll just have to use it as an occasion to expand those boundaries and let more and more people in. And of course, this is just one story about Jesus having dinner with quote-unquote sinners. If you're at all familiar with the four biographies of Jesus, then you probably know well enough that the Gospels are filled with stories like this one. There are actually dozens of them. In fact, there's so many that in the story, Jesus gets called a glutton and a drunkard <laughs> because he spends so much time eating and drinking with people. Now, to be clear, we don't actually believe Jesus was either of those things, but the point is that he earned that reputation for a reason. Look at it this way. Even if we were drawing from Luke's gospel alone, you would have these stories. In chapter 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house, not the Levi that's here. Chapter 7, Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman while dining in the home of a Pharisee. Chapter 9, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. It's a lot of food. Chapter 10, Jesus eats at Martha and Mary's house. Chapter 11, Jesus gets real with the Pharisees while eating at his house. Chapter 14, Jesus is eating at someone's house and encourages them to invite the poor. Chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, if you know, ends with a huge party and a meal. Chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about a rich king who eats like a king while someone begs for scraps from the table, and the story doesn't go well for the rich guy. Chapter 19, Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. Chapter 22 is the famous Last Supper, Jesus eating with his friends. And in chapter 24, Jesus eats with his disciples after coming back from the dead. And this story includes the line, and I quote, he was known to them in the breaking of bread. A bit later, Jesus actually specifically asks for something to eat, which I always think is the most hilarious line. He like walks through a wall and they're like, oh my God, he's alive. He's like, I'm hungry. Do you guys have anything? Uh, and that's just Luke. New Testament scholar Robert Karras authored this interesting book called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. And in it, he writes this. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. <laughs> and yet, interestingly, when many of us draft a mental list of the most important life rhythms that marked the work and the ministry of Jesus, we might mention things like prayer, absolutely, social justice, healing the sick, miracles, casting out demons, preaching, on down that list, all true. But I venture a guess that many of us would forget to mention eating and drinking. In Luke's gospel twice, Jesus uh, uses this interesting verbal formula to talk about himself. One is in Luke chapter 7. When Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 
So here Jesus is describing his mission. That's what he came to do. The other variation on this phrase is in Luke 7 when Jesus says this, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And this phrase describes the method to Jesus' mission. See, in, in the few years that Jesus went about Israel doing his thing, he garnered his fair share of opposition. People became hostile toward Jesus and to what he was up to. And this is, in the broad sense, not really all that dissimilar to the predicament we share as disciples of Jesus in the modern post-Christian world. For you and I to follow Jesus is often, not always, but often frowned upon by the world around us, uh, particularly here in the Pacific Northwest. Some people are indifferent. Some people are peaceful or even curious. Still others are outright hostile. So what can we learn from Jesus' example? How did Jesus go about inviting people into God's kingdom in a hostile environment? One meal at a time. This was Jesus' method to what is sometimes referred to as evangelism. Now, that word doesn't show up in the New Testament. Honestly, we don't really care for it uh, or the baggage that it carries. It, it makes talking about Jesus sound like a strategy as if inviting people to know God were akin to like a pyramid scheme or a door-to-door -door cult salesman. And yet Jesus certainly did go about preaching the gospel constantly. And he did, he did so with different sorts of relational approaches with different sorts of people. So Jesus is often before folks who are already into the idea of God. They're a soft sell on the idea of God. They're into the Bible um, but he thinks that they're off, religious people in other words. So he'll stand up and he'll preach, and it gets pretty intense. With other folks, those who are nowhere near a Bible or a church, those who have kind of been pushed out away to the margins, those unliked and unwanted by the religious folks, for them, you open up your home. You sit around a table, you eat and drink, you talk about life, you ask questions, you listen, and you invite them into God's kingdom. This is what the New Testament calls hospitality. In Greek, the word is philonyxia, and it's a compound word. Uh, philo means love. Think of Philadelphia, you know, the city of brotherly love, right? Is that Philadelphia? City of Rocky is what I know it for. And uh, xenos, which means a stranger, a foreigner, or a guest. So in this sense, New Testament hospitality is the exact opposite of xenophobia, which is the fear and hatred of the stranger and the foreigner. Xenophobia is actually a satanic ideal, often well represented in America and against which the church continues to battle by welcoming the refugee, the immigrant, the foreigner. Philonyxia is love of the stranger, love of the foreigner, the welcoming of a guest. And disciples of Jesus are commanded to practice philonyxia or hospitality as a spiritual discipline. Paul writes this, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Peter writes this, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. In Hebrews, it is written, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Go figure. Um, in both 1 Timothy and in Titus in the New Testament, the practice of hospitality is one of the requirements of elders or leaders of the church. 
Um, this is in 1 Timothy, Timothy 3. Now the overseer or elder is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and the list goes on. And then in Titus you have, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. All that to say, every disciple of Jesus, whether they lead the church or don't lead the church, is commanded by their master to practice the ancient art of hospitality. I read this week about um, a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, who's an author who's written quite a bit on the subject of hospitality. Uh, as a PhD and a tenured professor at Syracuse University, I believe Dr. Butterfield specialized in feminist theory, queer theory, and 19th century British literature, which is quite the pedigree. And Dr. Butterfield uh, was a far-left lesbian feminist who had been an outspoken critic of the religious right, um, pretty vitriolic about it. And she was conducting research for an academic paper uh, against the religious right, and she received what was kind of a nice enough letter from a pastor who invited her over to have dinner and talk about her research. And she figured, well, what the heck, I've got research to do. This might contribute to my paper. So she accepted. And then she talks about in her book that that meal, along with the many meals after it with the man who became her friend, it became one of the first steps in her coming to faith in Jesus. And now she is a disciple of Jesus who writes about hospitality in the church. And in her writing today, she makes the case that the LGBT community does a better job at hospitality than the church. And she invites disciples of Jesus to rediscover a New Testament idea of hospitality. She writes this, Radically ordinary hospitality, those who live it, see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of His kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. On a similar note, author Simon Carey Holt wrote this, It's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and everyday that it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. At its base, hospitality is about providing a, a space for God's Spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation, providing a context in which people feel loved and welcomed and where God's Spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness is its real worth. Whatever it looks like, your own table is a sacred place. Now, if you're anything like me, you often think of your home as a place of refuge to get away from the chaos of everyday life, you know, like Superman's Fortress of Solitude, or it's like an inner sanctum of some kind. That's not all bad. But what if our homes were also little outposts for the kingdom of God in our respective neighborhoods and cities? Now, let's take a brief detour here to work out a very important distinction that I think uh, our, our culture kind of confuses from time to time. Hospitality is not the same thing as entertaining guests. Some folks enter the conversation around hospitality and their you know, itching Instagram fingers start to heat up, man. They're thinking, oh, the ever-impressive ways I can photograph my home, showcase my nice, neat little possessions, oh, the beautiful people I will invite, oh, the beautiful decorations under which we will pose. And uh, <laughs> if my sarcasm isn't enough, to, to be clear, this is, the actual, this is actually the antithesis of New Testament hospitality. Why? Because 
Entertaining guests is often about exclusion. The coolest guest list possible, the in-crowd, appearances, surfaces. Hospitality is about an open table at which all are welcome, especially those who are nowhere to be found amongst the cool kids. Entertaining guests is often about showing off your home, your food, your spread, your circle of friends. But hospitality is about humility, making a guest a part of your home, not wowing them with it. Entertaining guests is about claiming your spot on the social ladder. Follow me and I'll follow you. Invite the cool people. Get invited by the cool people. But hospitality is often about justice for the poor or opening the doors of your home to a stranger or the uncool or the unwelcome. There's this interesting scene in Luke's gospel where Jesus talks about the right way to throw a party, which I think is funny because he just seems to assume that his disciples will throw parties and he actually encourages them to do so. But of those parties, he says this, Do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. That's a bad thing to Jesus. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is Jesus' trademark hyperbole. Don't even invite your own family. He's illustrating the call for his disciples to favor the unfavorable. And get this, for hundreds of years, when you begin to read about church history, hospitality was the primary means by which the story of Jesus and the kingdom of God proliferated throughout the Roman Empire. That's nuts. In three centuries, if you look at history, the Christian movement went from a few hundred people, dinky minority, to over half the population of the Roman Empire. And this happened without social media or worship bands or delay pedals or celebrity pastors or programs or ministries, no Helvetica font. There were no programs or tracks or events or stadiums or book deals, just radically ordinary hospitality. And it's not that all those things I just listed were bad. We use a ton of them, if not, well, we use a lot of them. But what if we found a way to tap into the beauty and the potential of hospitality today in the modern post-Christian world? So we are about to begin to learn together the ancient spiritual discipline of eating and drinking. And before we end tonight, I have one last thought about this whole idea If you've been around for any of our ongoing study of the Gospel of Matthew, you know well enough that Jesus had a lot to say about people being in or out. He was big on dichotomy and juxtaposition. It was a huge thing. And as a result, Christian culture has all sorts of awkward phrasing to describe the difference between those who are and are not disciples of Jesus. This is an inevitable reality. So we use terms like unsaved or not followers or non-believers, unbelievers, things like that. Or we say the lost. In fact, this last one, the lost, is a term that Jesus himself employed, as we read just a bit earlier, I came to seek and to save the lost. And if you know the story of Jesus, Jesus is not unkind, he's not condescending, he's not disrespectful. The story we read tonight should be evidence enough of that. A lost person is not necessarily any less intelligent than someone who knows the way. Uh, You know, I'm so navigationally impaired that I honestly, this is Dead serious. I walk like down a sidewalk and turn into a building and I'm there for 30 seconds, come out of the building and then go the wrong way. That I, and I was just there and, and every time my wife had just like, what are you doing? How can you not? It's a real thing. Something's wrong with my brain. Um, and that alone doesn't mean that I'm an idiot. Please reserve your comments. <laughs> just that one thing doesn't mean it though. 
lost people, as a general rule, do not want to be lost, you know. And remember, Jesus constantly likens his way of life to a road or to a journey. So naturally for Jesus, those who have not found his narrow road are lost. There's a scene in uh, Stephen King's longest novel called The Stand in which a, a deaf man meets this old Christian Southern woman named Mother Abigail. And she's talking to him about God, and he's just indifferent because he's an atheist. So he signs to her, I don't believe in God. And Mother Abigail laughs and just says, that's all right, he believes in you. And I think that that's what, that's what this makes me think of. When Jesus used the word lost, it brings that kind of uh, gentle, loving compassion to mind. Um, that I imagine someone who's like angry and hurt and defiant of Jesus' way of life or who's just thought about it and says, no thanks, I'm good, I'm going my own way. And so they say, I know where I'm going, I'm going my own way, I reject your way, I'm, I'm good with this one. And I imagine Jesus just laughing and saying, nah, you're just lost at the moment. You just don't know the way, this is the other way. It's not that you um, are bad, fundamentally evil, set against me, it's just you're just lost. So why did Jesus come to seek and to save the lost? And how did he do it? by eating and drinking. So much of first century culture just doesn't translate to our modern world at all. But it seems to me that Jesus' methodology still works pretty dang good. Um, a dinner table is the perfect venue to get to know someone, the perfect venue to talk, to dis discuss, to listen, to disagree, to learn from one another. It's the perfect place to share the gospel. And the beauty of this idea is that everyone loves a meal <laughs> for the most part. You'll definitely eat a few this week. Uh, it's not an alien routine. It's not an outrageous new idea. You know, when I was up here doing the fasting thing, I mean, geez, or silence and solitude, I'm like, trust me, it's going to be good. But you're all eating already, you know. Um, you can meet someone for breakfast, you know, before work or school. You can grab lunch with a coworker in the middle of the day. You can invite a neighbor to go out to dinner or to come to your house. You can throw a party. You can have a cookout. It's summer, so people love to stand outside for some reason. Um, <laughs> And this isn't even adding anything to life's already busy plate, per se. You just invite people to what you're going to do anyway. You don't need debate skills. In fact, don't bring any debate skills at all. Um, you don't need a seminary degree or, uh, you know, expertise in the Bible. You don't need a textbook. You don't need a beautiful home. You just need a table and a meal or a floor and a meal, whatever. Um, I uh, host this podcast on the side, if you didn't know, which group of people sit around a table, and they just argue about movies. That's the premise. And sometimes things get heated. Sometimes people try to convince one another of their theories and interpretations. But no one actually gets mad. It's always around the table, friends, closeness. Everyone enjoys the conversation. Sometimes we even change one another's minds and help one another to see something that wasn't there before. So once, for example, I was griping uh, about what I believe to be one of what I did believe to be uh, one of the more inferior Pixar films called Inside Out. Don't get upset if you disagree. Yeah, someone already groaned. To... Um, and I was, you know, like, <laughs> my whole logic was, oh, wow, what a sad movie. A rich little girl in a nice house moves to a, another nice house in another great city. Poor thing, tragic. And my wife, Abby, who's also on the show from time to time, she said, oh, try using the parents as your connection characters rather than the protagonists. And I said, oh, yeah, that's better. I love that movie now. Um, or once I was arguing with a friend about the meaning of this film called Whiplash, and he was hostile to my interpretation of it. He's like, you're a fool, a fool, Josh Porter. And then I said, yeah, but think about this. And did you notice this line? And watch this scene again. And he goes, oh, yeah, that, that's the right interpretation for sure. Um, 
But, you know, whenever I sit with people to talk about movies and sit down like, hey, let's sit down and argue about Whiplash or Pixar or whatever it might be, uh, no one flips out and no one says, oh, but how? How will we do it? Well, I don't have a degree in film criticism. I, how, what would I say? What if I'm awkward? My God. Because the environment of the conversation is disarming. It's just friends sitting around a table eating and talking together. It's just people talking. We have strong views. That's totally fine. You get passionate. We want to hear from one another. We want to argue and disagree and laugh and we listen, and we talk, and it just makes me think, why can't having a meal and even talking about Jesus be the very same way? So the practice for the coming week is a really simple one. When you get together with your community, or if you're not in a community yet, just get together with a group of friends. You'll go to practicingtheway.org, talk a bit, then ask God to bring someone to mind for whom a dinner invitation would be appropriate and good. Um, And I'm actually going to set up the beginning of that practice in just a moment. We'll pray and we'll invite God's Spirit to speak to us. So if you guys are, are comfortable, just go ahead and uh, close your eyes if that helps you. Stave off the distraction. You don't have to. Whatever works. I'm just going to invite God's Spirit to speak. Um, don't worry. You're not about to go to dinner with anyone right this second, so you don't have to freak out. There's no contract to sign or anything like that. But I was just thinking about the way that um, just a few minutes ago, Cam was talking about foster care, and he said, The only thing we're asking, you know, not everyone can do this. You don't want to jump in based on idealism, nothing like that. But we are encouraging you to just ask God, is this something that I can or should do, something I'd be good at, something I can contribute to in some way or another? And that's all we're going to do right now. You're not signing up. You're not about to have to, like, call someone right here where you sit or anything. But I want to invite God's Spirit to speak. And if you're comfortable, if you're, you're okay with it, just sit back. Try to be open-minded and see if God brings to mind someone in need of hospitality. Maybe that person doesn't follow Jesus. That's probably uh, the ideal um, candidate for this kind of hospitality that we're talking about. But it could be someone who's estranged from the church, someone who's discouraged, someone who's in a low place right now, someone who needs uh, to be welcomed and to be loved and to sit at a table and have a conversation, down-to-earth conversation that can and should include the things that um, spark your interest and your passion and your joy and your love. And that, I think, for a disciple of Jesus, inevitably includes Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, you have access to our minds. Even if we don't follow Jesus, you have access to our minds, our imaginations, and our dispositions.